The night has already turned on that imperceptible pivot where 2 a.m. changes to 6 a.m. You know this moment has come and gone, but you are not yet willing to concede that you have crossed the line beyond which all is gratuitous damage and the palsy of unraveled nerve endings. Somewhere back there, you could have cut your losses, but you rode past that moment on a comet trail of white powder, and now you're trying to hang on to the rush. So says Jay McInerney in his debut and highest-selling novel, Bright Lights, Big City. Welcome to Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And I'm author Zachary Kellyan. It's season three time. Is it? Yes. It is. Uh, didn't we agree that we had the warp whistle and we were just going to go straight to season five? <laughs> no? Okay. I'm beyond excited about what we've got lined up here. We did a couple months back a preview, talked about all the books that we have here. And honestly, I couldn't wait to jump into it. I've been reading the books. I've been thinking about the books. And Bright Lights Big City, to me, feels like a way to bridge what we were talking about so much in season two with some of the big questions that we want to be asking about what it means for masculinity in a world that's changing so much right now in 2023. That and where were we sourcing our cocaine from in the 80s? I don't know. Like, this may surprise you, but I was not old enough to legally do cocaine in the 80s. There are people legally doing cocaine in the 80s? (laughs) It was legal then, right? Clearly. It it must be because everyone is doing it in this book all the time. This is our first of two reader-suggested novels that we'll be tackling this season on Literary Guys. And I love that it mirrors, in so many ways, books that we've already read. Namely, the works of Brett Easton Ellis. And a little bit of Chuck Palahniuk, but yes, mostly Brett Easton Ellis. But as we will get into later in this episode, that's not really the case. We find out that McInerney has a very distinct literary voice, but it is connected and... Maybe this is worth, like, before we get into anything, talking a little bit about this literary brat pack. Sure. So we're talking early to mid-1980s and literature in general having become a little bit more of a staid affair, I would say. Would you? I would indeed. And we have kind of these unique voices that are Mm -hmm. really tackling some of the seedier underbelly of the youth of that era. We've got Brett Easton Ellis with his debut, Less Than Zero. We have Jay McInerney, of course, with Bright Lights, Big City. We also have Tamara Janowitz, who did Slaves of New York City, a lot of short story compilations that really peeled back the layer of this privileged upper class youth and their disillusionment with the world around them and their hard partying ways. And the literati just ate this up. These three individuals, and to a certain extent, Donna Tartt and some other individuals, Chuck Palahniuk, people who were in that peripheral, got swept up in this media storm of these new writers who were writing these really provocative works. When I look at it from a literary perspective, I see that if you go back to the 1920s, 1930s, pulp novels actually were very edgy. It yeah. had characters that didn't appear in other forms of literature. They were actually much more realistic about the way they portrayed the underbelly, as you say, of society. But they were always just that. And I think what's really fascinating about the literary Brat Pack and their work is that it's the elevation of that seedy, edgy, broken society into high-end literature, sort of the blue-chip literature and publishers who were just falling over themselves to publish the work of these authors. And I think that's a really great connection between Pulp Fiction and the works of the late 70s, early 1980s, because I think we're also seeing America going into and then coming out of an era of conservatism. The whole Hayes Code in Hollywood with what you could and couldn't show really did affect what could and couldn't be written about for the most part in novels, or at least what would be deemed mainstream. And so I think in the 1980s, we see a lot of young authors really getting a chance to flex their creative muscle a bit more than perhaps the constraints of previous decades. So we've gotten right into it here, but let's back up for a second because there's a couple things that I think for housekeeping that we should take care of here. As usual, we are coming to you from the Stardust Lounge here in beautiful Seattle, Washington. They had a few months, they did a little refresh. I think the tables are new, but as we pointed out last season, there's really cool burns in the carpeting. And they kept those. Or maybe they're just new? 
I can't tell. <laughs> the uh, lilting piano that you hear in the background is from the lovely Edgar Bergamont, the house pianist here at the Stardust Lounge for at least 20 years, as far as I'm aware. I think he's been here at least as far back as this book was published. He may or may not be a vampire. We're going to get into that later in the season. Yeah, I think we've got to finally address it. We've gotten some feedback on that. <laughs> and then serving us our drinks, which today are fairly simple. We're just drinking vodka on the rocks in honor of Bright Lights Big City, is our amazing bartender, Crystal, who has been with us since the first season. She was underwhelmed by the cocktail <laughs> choice here, but by the same token, she understood. She is a literary fan, just like us, gives us a lot of great ideas. Absolutely. And she was a big proponent of choosing this book when it was suggested as part of our listener's choice last year. She was like, no, it needs to kick off a season. And she wouldn't explain why. But I think now that I've dug into it, I think I understand. It makes sense. Are you referring to the fact that Crystal has a more matronly, motherly relationship to you and I? Or are you referring to the fact that she loves the cocaine novels of the 1980s and thinks we should just do a podcast about those? I'm going to say both. Absolutely. That's why we love Crystal. Perfect. If we really are going to be tackling the cocaine novels of the 1980s, I think you and I, as non-users of the powder probably should start familiarizing ourselves with some of the terms, at least collecting them as we read. Is this going to be like one of those things for parents? If you hear your kids talking about X online, <laughs> like... Everything's way out of date. We exactly. are. Yeah, yeah. As you mentioned earlier, there's that interesting euphemism that he has for cocaine that I hadn't heard before and indeed is original to the novel. Your brain at this moment is composed of brigades of tiny Bolivian soldiers. They are tired and muddy from their long march through the night. There are holes in their boots and they are hungry. They need to be fed. They need Bolivian marching powder. Were we getting cocaine from Bolivia in the 1980s? I have no idea. Again, I was not legally doing <laughs> cocaine in the 80s. And he also, at one point, I believe, calls cocaine Peruvian pink, which implies that maybe we were also getting our cocaine from Peru, and that varietal was pink, which just... Had some volcanic ash, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> maybe. What was going on with cocaine in the 1980s? You think of Colombia as the main sourcer of cocaine, but obviously there's a lot we have to learn. So we will look to more Jay McInerney in the future to learn more about what we should be calling our cocaine. And of course, we'll be going to Brett Easton Ellis more often to find out what bathrooms we should be doing our cocaine in. Do you think that the Heartbreak or the Odeon had good bathrooms? I think the Odeon had a great bathroom. There's so many great scenes of both male and female restroom cocaine usage. And That's true, yeah. The harbinger of the gender-neutral bathrooms that we have in this day and age at the Odeon, as long as you were doing cocaine, every bathroom was gender-neutral. Now, one thing that you may have noticed when you downloaded this episode is that this is a longer episode than what we did in seasons one and two for the most part. And that's because we're trying a new approach. Maybe we'll keep it. Maybe we won't. Who knows? But in this approach, we're going to do one episode covering the entirety of the book in the first week of each month. And then on the third week of the month, we're going to be releasing one of our varied episodes, be it a reading, be it a used bookstore visit, be it even commenting on popular culture, which is something that we've discussed here from a literary perspective, what things outside of the book world need to be commented on or help inform where literature might be going and themes that maybe aren't being expressed sufficiently well yet in literature. So we're going to go into that direction as well. But for today, we have this wonderful novel, and it's a deceiving novel because it starts off like so many of these cocaine novels that we've really dug into now, like our whole month of Brett Easton Ellis. But there is a lot more to it, and I think that's what we've come to like about this book and really see it as something special. So let's just kick off with maybe the elephant in the room, which is that this book is written in a very strange way. And it's been a very long time since I've read a book in the second person. Yeah, it's, I would say, more common in the 2020s to write something with the uh, second person perspective that you do this, you are doing that, you believe this kind of voice. But certainly in the mid 80s when this novel was coming out, it was a very unique literary choice. How did it strike you as you were reading it? To me, it didn't really change my interpretation of the novel. It made it feel maybe a little bit more jarring because for the most part, the narrator who is spoken to in the second person is omniscient of his own thoughts, but he's also a psychologically damaged individual 
for whom cannot properly interpret his own feelings and thoughts. And that kind of gave it this odd give and take that I think it's interesting. I don't know if it necessarily made or broke the book for me. It just was there. Yeah, and I think it depends on your perspective, too. Are you reading this from your armchair in your cozy home? Or are you reading this while doing cocaine off a toilet seat at Odeon? Because then when Jay McInerney says you, you're like, how does he know? I like this literary device. I would say it's a little spoiled for me growing up as a kid in the 1980s. I read a lot of choose your own adventure novels that are also written in the second person. And I think because that's my template for what this voice is, it took a lot longer for me to get into this novel than I would have liked because of that almost distancing aspect of the second person, where I think it's intended to be a lot more intimate for me without the liberty to choose which page I read next. It took a little bit of getting used to rereading one of those novels. It's an interesting contrast, and I think we'll get to this later in our discussion, about the lack of intimacy amongst people and personal familiarity as far as what makes one person different from another person or what do we really value about individuals. And I don't know, maybe it is interesting that that's a theme later in the book and this idea of the second person making it extremely personal. Despite the fact that this is a all-knowing narrator, they apparently don't know one thing, which is what their name is. Yes, the narrator is unnamed. I guess if you're going to write a second-person novel, that's probably a prerequisite. Someone else could use the name to talk to that person. I believe our fact-checkers at, in our office, in our fact-checking department, will have to double-check me on this, but I do believe when the Michael J. Fox movie of the same name came out with a screenplay co-written by Jay McInerney, I do believe the main character's name was Jay. Really? I'm pretty sure. Jake. That's, that's creative. Where did he uh, <laughs> Where would he one? ever come up with that? I think yeah, it was Jay nuts. Calloway. And interestingly enough, there are multiple novels by Jay McInerney with the word bright in the title. Brightness Falls, Bright Precious Days, none of which on the surface have any connection to <laughs> Bright Lights Big City, but all of which contain protagonists with the last name Calloway. Mm. And that's the name he gave the character for the movie. So I think there's maybe some kind of larger Jay McInerney verse that we're yeah. dealing with. And actually, we'll talk about this later, but it does blend in a little bit with Brett Easton Ellis's own universe from time to time. Which is not surprising. They were all running in the same circle. So we've got this unnamed narrator, but then we actually have the protagonist of the novel, who is Tad Allagash. Oh, you gotta love Tad. Honestly, I really was just like, shut up with all this personal introspection. I want more Tad. Tad is just a great bro. You know, you're not going to have a deep conversation with Tad. He doesn't want to hear about your troubles. But man, if you ever need somebody to just slip you a vial of cocaine when you're talking to an NYU co-ed, Tad's there for you, man. He's got you covered. I love it, the conclusion of that scene that he makes plans to meet up. And the narrator is like, that's never going to happen. Like, it's just assumed that this guy is such a disaster that he feels socially obligated to make a plan, but he will not follow through on it. You and I have a mutual friend who shall remain unnamed, but Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of Tad in our mutual friend because we have this friend who can be the life of the party when he's there, Mm -hmm. but then can also create definitive plans with you, and you already know it's not going to happen, and you're strangely not offended because that's just the world that this person lives in. He almost lives in a parallel universe, just like Tad does, where Mm -hmm. he doesn't mean anything by his reluctance to keep up with schedules or to be missing for weeks at a time. That's just who he is, man. And that's Mm -hmm. just who Tad is. He does not take no for an answer. And I don't have an exact proxy for Tad in my life, but I think that shows with all the cocaine residue I still have on my mirrors lying around my house. Mm -hmm. So of Tad, Jay McInerney says, (laughs) Tad's mission in life is to have more fun than anyone else in New York City. And this involves a lot of moving around, since there is always the likelihood that where you aren't is more fun than where you are. I like that. It's presaging 2020's FOMO culture that he is just constantly on the move. Motion more so than progress. People in their lives, they do a lot, but do they actually improve? Do they actually better themselves? A lot of people just 
create motion. Tad is one of those people who creates motion. Yeah, and it's interesting that were Tad a real person, there's probably a lot of darkness driving that behavior, but we don't really oh, sure, yeah. get into that in this novel. Whereas if you contrast it with maybe Timothy Bryce from Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho, you've got a guy who's also the life of the party, who's also Johnny on the spot when it comes to any drug needs, mm -hmm. but who is also maybe going to commit suicide off the balcony of a nightclub from time to time. So it's interesting that this character of Tad almost seems impervious to the chaos that he's creating around him. So the connection here, and really the book begins with a Tad story in a nightclub. The Heartbreak, is it called? I think so. That, again, going to the text here, the narrator says, You have friends who actually care about you and speak the language of the inner self. You have avoided them of late. Your soul is as disheveled as your apartment. And until you can clean it up a little, you don't want to invite anyone inside. So the narrator is lost at the beginning of this novel. In fact, is lost for the vast majority of this novel. He is a fact checker at a unnamed magazine that is pretty clearly the New Yorker. As Jay McInerney himself was a fact checker at the New Yorker while writing this novel. I love the name of the Department of Factual Verification. Yeah. It sounds very, I don't know, the movie Brazil. It kind of yes. has that vibe about it. I thought we were going to get into some kind of like Kafka-esque exploration of bureaucracy in this. Right. We don't at all, but it is such an interesting parallel to the chaos that's going on in his personal life to be rooted in this place of fact and logic and structure. So we see the narrator going out and just partying on a school night, for lack of a better term, just trying to keep the evening going with more and more cocaine, or as this book refers to it, Bolivian marching powder. And eventually the next day, he shows up extremely late for work, is given an assignment to fact check a French article, and he doesn't really speak French, he lied about yeah. it on his resume. This is sort of the downfall, his inability to fact check this properly or to be able to see through his hangover, to be able to do anything or even to realize that he should have given the work to someone else, becomes his downfall by the midpoint of this novel when he's eventually fired for essentially incompetence in his job. But it doesn't end there. Like We see the whole thing as a setup at the beginning, like this is not going to go well. But it gives us an opportunity to meet the cast of characters at the Department of Factual Verification, of which there are many, some of whom I think may be not as awful of people as Jay McInerney makes them out to be, but mm -hmm. he, it's where he is in his head at that point where he's projecting his own problems and shortcomings onto other people as well. Yeah, he's a timeless character archetype, the frustrated writer. He's been Wait, that's never been done before. <laughs> he's submitting short stories, sometimes to his own literary magazine, not seeing a lot of success there, and having been someone who was writing prolifically but still not published not that long ago, I can relate to some of that frustration and some of that sense of identity of, I am a writer, but who is going to recognize that I am besides myself? And you can see how that really spirals out of control, and I think one of the interesting things that there is such a large chunk, maybe the first 40 percent of this novel really dedicated to a blur of parties and drug abuse and misanthropy but i think there's a lot more repercussions for his actions right away than we see in maybe less than zero yeah because he's not privileged no no he doesn't come from privilege we learn obviously far later in the novel that he's got some past traumas that he's still dealing with but we're aware of his most recent trauma his wife up and leaving him with little to no explanation and i think that would be traumatic for anybody i think as a reader we can look at it and see the character of amanda as being very problematic whether correctly painted so by this narrator or not, what we learn about her is not at all flattering, and he's certainly better off without a life partner like that. Yeah, absolutely. But when you're in that moment, when you're in that place of hurt, you can't tell that. And the loss that he has experienced, his fear of even going back to his own apartment, how he begins to loathe it like it's a dungeon, I think we can all relate to that when we're in a rut in our lives. And so it could blur in with a lot of that cocaine party scene of the 80s. It doesn't because I think there is, even from the beginning, a little bit more heart, a little bit more sympathy for this character. The way in which he got dumped was... Cool. Terrible. This is the equivalent in this book of what I would think of now as the infamous getting dumped in a text message yeah. moment where his wife, Amanda, goes off to Paris to be in a fashion show and just calls him. Is like, it's over. 
it's really heartless and one of the things that I think is good is the realization by the narrator over the course of this novel that she was shallow and that she was vapid and that this meant nothing to her and he actually can be better than that. He can rise above it. And I think it's interesting, despite the potential for misogyny there, when you've got a male character who is attributing all their current woes to a heartless woman. It's not Tad that kind of starts coaxing him back to reality. It's not Tad or the ghost or the druid at the Department of Fact-Checking who bring our narrator back to a better version of himself. It's a lot of the women that he encounters throughout the course of this novel who help him, I think, heal a little bit and restore a bit of his former self. The people around him are, for the most part, not helping him. Yeah. Like, the male characters, I mean, this is a contrast to what you just said, like, the male characters are, for the most part, detracting from his ability to move forward. We talked about Tad, who I would go party with anytime. Oh, Seems yeah. like a great guy. We've got the, is it the druid? Is the famous author who is... Or is that the ghost? I thought the ghost was the guy who had been working on the article oh, that's for, right. like, a that's really right. long yeah, time. That's right. Yeah, the druid, yes. Yeah. And it's Alex Hardy, I think. This guy who, it sounds like it's not a three martini lunch. It's more of a three martini pre-lunch cocktailing and then get into three more martinis. Like this, this guy is a heavy drinker. This book introduced me to a new term, the detox sabbatical. Yeah, it's in there. Which, man, wouldn't that be great if we just had that today? Just a common understanding that hey, once every three years, you got to take a few months and just detox from your six martini lunches. He really is a cautionary character in this story because while he is admired by the narrator as someone who... He knew Faulkner. Come yeah, on. exactly. And he, he was published and he was revered within the magazine. Like He had the equivalent of tenure, I guess you could say, yeah. at the New Yorker. I think when narrator joined the magazine, that was like, oh man, this is exactly what I want. This is exactly what success looks like. And by the end of the novel, we see this character who was revered almost become a farce where we see him attacked by a ferret <laughs> whose his name is Fred, by the way. Let's, let's be clear. Yeah. Um, the ferret does have a name. Although, I think it was a missed opportunity not to call it Ferret Bueller. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Classic 80s. All right. And then where we see this character passed out in Clara Tillinghast's office, the head of the Department of Factual Verification, because they ran into each other late at night in the offices after the narrator had been fired, and he couldn't even figure out who any of these people were, who he knew and regularly went to lunch <laughs> with. That was great. Pygmies. The pygmies are attacking. I'm not sure that's a term we can use anymore. Is it? I don't know. It's a great question. Again, we'll go to our fact-checking department and check it out. I know there is a tribe that identifies as pygmy. Okay, so maybe it is. But let's be honest. While I don't think this is a malicious novel, there is a lot of references and ideologies and outlooks that haven't aged well. Particularly some of the representations of the gay community or some of the mentions of that. Or I believe we even encounter a trans woman at one point who is almost played for laughs or shock value. Yeah. I'm not saying this book is not without its faults. Yeah. But also we look at Brad Easton Ellis and we see many of the same things. And I'm not saying that is a reason to forgive what is here. But I think if we look at this book as a cultural memoir capturing the moment, I think that this is very much the way in which the gay community was viewed. And it, yeah. that's not great and it's sad, but... It's definitely part of the cultural view of what it meant to be gay at the time. And I appreciate your perspective on that. I think it's interesting to see this book that kind of took greater America by storm and that the people who are living, quote unquote, alternative lifestyles from the norm are in this book. They're not being hidden away, but they're kind of there as set dressing like, oh, isn't New York this wild and crazy place? Aren't these people extreme? And I feel like is that kind of the nascent coaxing out of some of the otherness, the marginalized people in society? At least they're getting mentioned now and not in completely hateful ways, albeit demeaning ways. Yeah, there's a lot of slurs. And yeah. It's not great. It's not great, but at the same time, it, it seems like, I guess it had to happen this way to get yeah. to where we've got these really rich, well-rounded gay characters in current literature. I will say that the setting 
of these clubs and the disco scene. Like, disco and everything that came after it was very much coming out into the broader community of the LGBTQ society. It was one of those touchstone moments where it was very clear that there was a gay influence to it and it was embraced. Unlike a lot of the cultural cultural elements from the gay community that were in, let's say, 1940s film, which were never really acknowledged. It was just always like the odd character on the side. They weren't ever acknowledged as oftentimes the creators of much of the magic that you saw going on. But with disco, I think there was a, a coming knowledge that this was a phenomenon that was coming out of the gay community. Okay, And I think that, again, gave the kind of visibility that again here people didn't know what to do with it i really also look at this as a sense of confusion like how do you as a writer talk about these things the vernacular didn't really even exist you talk about the fact that there's a trans woman in here like that terminology didn't exist no it uses a much less flattering yeah exactly but it's interesting and i will say that i'm really glad that next month we're reading a book about a modern well-adjusted gay character well adjusted okay maybe not well adjusted well rounded (laughs) and i think that's really positive yeah we can look at this 37 years between these novels and see that kind of improvement but again i think that this book is in some ways a little bit of a historical piece and it does capture some of the awfulness of what it was as well and as we learned from our recent deep dive into all things Love Boat, the yes. Love Boat, which was making regular calls to Puerto Vallarta, had not one gay person on the entire ship. I thought you said there was one. There's one episode, apparently, where there is a gay couple, and it's played rather indelicately. Well, we may need to watch that and then talk about it here on Literary <laughs> Guys. So we've gone down this rabbit hole here of folks who the narrator knew. And I think this is probably a good time to kind of transition to the middle part of the book where the narrator has lost his job Mm -hmm. because he was found out. Clara (laughs) read his edits. They were not good. This magazine, which had only once ever printed a retraction, a fact that is brought up many times. Which seems just like the New Yorker being stubborn to not print more retractions. Yeah. You know, if if this book had really been about the New Yorker, it would have used the punctuation known as a diuresis, which is two dots that look like an umlaut that are placed over a vowel that is repeated and needs to be pronounced as if it was a second syllable. And the New Yorker has done this forever. So like the word cooperate has an umlaut over the second O, one of these marks. And so this book did not do that, and therefore I feel like it is missing out on yet another way to connect with New York. It may in fact be about the Atlantic Monthly. It could be, but it's not. It's clearly not. <laughs> it's clearly about the New Yorker. All right, so let's talk about the middle part, because as I said, the narrator is obsessed now with finding a way to reconnect with his wife. Right. And it's unclear like what that means to reconnect. I'm using that term vaguely here. I think it, he just wants answers. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know what answer will even satisfy him. He sometimes convinces himself that he wants to get back together with her. But I think, you know, when you have something that traumatic happen to you, it helps to have a why behind it. When we see all these tragedies that are occurring on the news all the time, the big question that all the media holds up until we find out is why? What was the motive for this? Mm -hmm. In his own personal life, the greatest tragedy is his wife leaving him. And the fact that she doesn't really give him a reason other than her lawyer's proposed reason of sexual abandonment, which he begins to fixate on, which I think is such a great insight into the male mindset. I wasn't able to satisfy this woman sexually. And so she went to another man. And that phrase really gets caught in his subconscious and he starts fixating on it because I think it hurts him more than what the actual reason is. And that's Amanda wasn't for him and they never really should have gotten married. And it was kind of a a fool's journey to begin with. But he's not ready to accept that. He needs something either a little bit more hurtful or a little bit more concrete to make it a reality. He didn't know about Odysseus. Which is the best character name in this book. Yes. The, yes. the new, uh, is it boyfriend, I guess? Maybe, maybe boyfriend for hire. We're not sure what their relationship is, yeah. but yeah. So the relationship between the narrator and Amanda, it's implied actually, if I'm not mistaken, pretty strongly that for a while he was the promising one. Yeah. 
They were in, what, Kansas City, and he had this up-and-coming career and was moving to New York and all that. She's coming from a really troubled home life, mm -hmm. abusive stepfather, that terrible kind of trailer park tragedy that she was attempting to escape. And then they come to New York and we see this role reversal. And it's certainly something that has come up in literature, particularly from before 2000, which is the loss of male identity because they're no longer the primary breadwinner. I think it's become something much more common now and acceptable, but I can imagine when this book was written that that's very emasculating to him, and I feel like that's also an undercurrent of what's going on here. Yeah, for sure. Even though the character, the narrator, I guess, is supposed to be us, we do get one of the few descriptors we get of this individual is that he's shorter than a lot of the other people around him. Amanda was taller than him in heels. His brother, Michael, even though he's younger, is taller than him. And so I definitely think there is a lot of masculine identity at play that this character is struggling with. So in his journey to reconnect with Amanda, we get some really good glimpses into the loss of identity and the loss of personality in 1980s culture. We have a couple instances here where he isn't so much gratified or successfully connecting with her as the real person, but he's reconnecting with a proxy. For instance, there is a shop window that has a mannequin that's dressed like she is, I think, in one of her magazine yes. images or something like that, and he goes to visit that. That is somehow giving him something from viewing this. And then he goes to this fashion show that he lies his way Oof. into, Oh, and then power drinks his way through in an impressive way. And he's never really assured that she is there, number one. And when the model comes out who looks like her, he's still not sure it's her. Yeah, what a scene. He's eventually kicked out of this event for being obnoxious and probably incredibly intoxicated based on the number of drinks he pounds in the short course of the scene. But for him, it wasn't about connecting with the person but more connecting with the visage of that mm. person. And, I, man, I just feel like that it's a 1980s idea of let's go to American Psycho with Brad Easton Ellis where no one seems to know anyone's real name and everyone just gets confused with each other and just accepted. But then also from a male and female perspective here that we're looking at the objectification of women. What are they? Are they actually people who you want to connect and have a loving relationship with? Or are they someone who you objectify and look at? Yeah, it is interesting, and I think he clearly doesn't know who Amanda is because he is so at a loss for answers as to why she would leave him, and that he is almost more satisfied with, which he knows to be a shallow industry, the fashion industry, but he's almost more satisfied with the artifice that they've built up around her because he built her up in an artifice in the exact same way. They never really connected on a deeper level that you would expect from an intimate partnership. So do you think that this is more of an indictment of men and what we do with sexual partners? Or do you believe that this is more of an indictment of the trauma that he has in his life and this is just how that, in his particular case, is rearing its head? It's an interesting question. I think I definitely go back a lot to that kind of prescribed way society has raised its men. Up to she's the one, quote unquote, nagging him to get married. And it's only after tragedy befalls him and he feels so lost that in the middle of an argument, just to shut up the argument for a second, he proposes to her. The kind of the way he handles that entire relationship from the beginning, I think really speaks to a man who doesn't understand what it should mean to have a true partnership with someone. And I think it also speaks to a man who's very immature and who hasn't been called out on that immaturity until just right now when this novel begins, both by his ex-wife, by some of the women around him, by his employer, by the world at large, as his world begins to unravel and his party boy lifestyle is revealed for the shallowness that it is. It's never shallow. Speaking as a party boy with an eye, not shallow at all. 
No. A lot of substance sure. there. Yeah, just one circuit party the next. You know me. While we're talking about Amanda, I think it's important to talk about Jay McInerney's real life and how so much of the previous novels that we've tackled in Literary Guys intersect with this whole moment. So you guys, if you're regular listeners of the podcast, you may recall that I had mentioned that one of Brett Easton Ellis's most famous exes was the woman who eventually had an affair with Senator John Edwards back in the mid-2000s. Well, this individual was also Amanda. So Jay McInerney's first wife was a fashion model who did leave him. I don't know if the circumstances are exactly the same. And then Brett Easton Ellis later went on to date this woman. And in fact, the character of Amanda comes up several times in Brett Easton Ellis's novels under the name Allison Poole, who is Amanda, you should know, later becomes a character in a second Jay McInerney novel, the one that actually follows this. And her name is changed to Amanda. And then Brett Easton Ellis puts Amanda in American Psycho as one of Patrick Bateman's victims. And then later as a main character in Lunar Park. So there is a very real life woman who has affected both of these men's novels in very extreme and tangible ways. And so I just think it's just so interesting that there's this whole literary universe that this one real world woman has created through her many affairs with the Brat Pack authors from the 1980s. Okay, this raises so many questions, but the big one is from a personal success standpoint. Is that what making it in the <laughs> literary world really is like? I mean, achieving that seems like a high watermark of getting yourself in all of these notable authors' works. It's like, the equivalent to being one of Hemingway's four wives. You're just cemented in history, man. When I was in New York recently, I saw the musical Six which is an intriguing piece. It's about the six wives of Henry VIII. And there's a song in there, and also a bit of dialogue, where they talk about who would have known them or what would people have said about them if they hadn't been a wife of Henry. It's really interesting to look at it from a perspective of women who were incredible women, yeah. who were varied in so many ways, and some of them, I believe his final wife was the first woman who was ever published in England? That's crazy. Like, to think that these are people who history would have forgotten if it hadn't been for the fact they just happened to be married to this really annoying guy. <laughs> and I don't know. I feel like it gives you visibility, but it's not the visibility that you really want. I can't imagine that's fulfilling. Or maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know if I'd have on my grinder profile that it was like <laughs> that I appeared under various names in different novels. Maybe I would put that there. You know, it's interesting you mentioned New York because as you know, I've been hounding your personal secretary for months now, leaving unanswered voice messages to schedule this time here at the Stardust to talk about Bright Lights Big City. I had to fly to New York just to get your attention. I waited for you on the stoop of your Airbnb for half a day. And what did you do when I finally locked eyes with you? You ran. I ran, yeah. That's, and, and <laughs> you're making reference here to this very weird scene where he sees his brother yeah. sitting on the stoop of his building and just bolts unsuccessfully. Which kind of brings us to that third section of the yeah. novel where this character who is so adrift, searching for such meaning, but also running from any actual repercussions or any actual kind of foundational principles of his life, is literally cornered by his brother, is also confronted by this assistant that he has worked with at the literary magazine prior, who it's unclear how she views him, but certainly she becomes somewhat of a proxy from his mother, as we mm -hmm. learn. These two individuals force him to reconcile some of his behavior, be it spurning his sexual advances or actually getting in a fight with him in his own apartment. Mm -hmm. But he really needs these jarring moments to kind of have any sense of self-reflection. And that kind of brings us into what I think is the strongest part of the novel, its final third. Before we get into that, though, let's pause for a word from our sponsor. We here at Literary Guys have been branching out, and we're actually going to be bringing you our first, in a hopeful, series of audiobooks inspired by the second person narrative choice of Jay McInerney. We bring you Bright Lights Big City, the Choose Your Own Adventure. And now, an excerpt. You see a woman being assaulted on the subway. What do you do next? To do nothing, turn to page 14. To stand up and offer help, even though doing so would now only draw attention to your prior inaction, turn to page 70. You have chosen Snort More Bolivian Marching Powder. You do a line, then a second, then a third. You lick the residue off the mirror. Your mind races. You feel good and right. To continue, reread this page a few more times. Okay, so where was the mirror? 
I'm confused. Aren't we on a subway? <laughs> don't you always do coke off a mirror? Do you like travel with a mirror? <laughs> I don't know what the standard kit for 80s cocaine use is, but we're going to get to the bottom of this as we continue our exploration of cocaine novels of the 1980s. Brought to you by Literary Guys. Brought to you by Zook. You know what shockingly became a cocaine narrative was White Lotus Season 2. <laughs> Which I think we might actually be talking about later this month. Stay tuned. Oh, man, that was a great coke scene in there. I think that brings us to the three most interesting relationships in this novel. His acrimonious relationship with his brother that we don't really understand the origins of for mm -hmm. most of the novel. His weirdly flirtatious, but yet also maternal yeah, relationship matronly. yeah, that he's got with, I believe, Megan in his office. And then, of course, the big reveal at the end that this character has a mother. And in fact... Wait, really? Yeah. Well, you had pitched it to me as this is going to be really good because the relationship with the mom is not something that we've seen in a lot of the books that we've read. And I am just waiting for this big mom reveal this whole time. <laughs> Where's the mom in this novel? But it is so powerful that she's not mentioned at all, intentionally not mentioned at all, because obviously it's one of the things the character's trying to escape from. And then we get kind of these powerful scenes towards the end. But we talked about the brother, Michael. There's such a great scene in their apartment where... I felt seen as a man. It felt very true to at least the masculine experience that I've had in life, where he and his brother, their blood's boiling. They've gone through subway chases trying to track one another down. The brother feels like our narrator has abandoned the family. Our narrator feels like the brother's judging him. There's just all this heat and passion and emotion, and it boils over into an actual physical altercation. Yeah. It's a big fight. It's a big fight. Like... Our narrator draws blood. Seemingly, the brother might knock him unconscious at some point. But then the very next moment, they're having the most clear, lucid conversation that they've ever had with one another. And that has been my experience, for better or for worse. I think you could say it's at least historically or societally, men aren't great at communicating their emotions with one another. And that maybe that physical altercation is enough spent emotion to get it out of our systems to where we can think logically and have a rational thought. But I also just love that there's no hurt feelings that they just had a fight. There's no leftover anger or anxiety about what had just happened. It's they can finally talk as brothers and they can finally have the conversation they were always meant to have. And for better or for worse, man, I think that is very true to a lot of men's experience. And I just love how it's handled in this moment. And then they share some cocaine. And then they share some cocaine, which Michael's supposed to be like the big prude of the novel who feels like his brother's just abandoned the family. You know, he feels like his brother's always been the disappointment. And then Megan, too, the secretary who has not had any of these life experiences. She's doing leftover cocaine powder that the narrator finds in the desk, which could be like sweet and low for all we know. Mm -hmm. So it is interesting that every character in this novel does cocaine because it wouldn't be a novel from the 80s if there was a character not doing cocaine. Yeah, the mother on her deathbed's just doing lines. <laughs> it's very weird. No, so I agree with you, but I guess I'll have a little twist on that. Sure. Which is, as we've discussed in the past, I'm not a fighting kind of person. And... Neither a lover nor a fighter is, I believe, what you like to say about yourself. <laughs> the thing, though, is I think there are other proxies that get in a similar way, at least for me, that mm. resonate on a level that I need. And I find that sports and athletics provides that same outlet. Yeah. There's been many times where maybe someone wasn't on my best side or it got on my nerves or whatever, and then we go and we play like football or something like that, but then are able to afterwards connect in a very deep level. And I think it's just something about that male spirit of competitiveness mm -hmm. and also the physical exertion that really do add up to something. I think a fight, as we saw in Fight Club, is the most singular thing that I think, and immediate, mm -hmm. about immediacy here. Yeah. Cocaine is about immediacy. Fighting is about immediacy. It gets to the point. And I think that there are other ways to get there, but I think in principle, the same underlying factors are present there. And it does seem to be a very masculine trait. Yeah, there are a few more 
pure moments than sitting around with a bunch of guys that you just slog through a muddy field with for half the day and having a beer. There's a lot of great conversations and a lot of great breakthrough moments that can happen in that. So I think you're spot on. I think they're two sides of the same coin. And I think maybe in a thousand years, we'll maybe no longer need that kind of physical representation of our emotions. But until we do, I think it's important that we recognize that as men and find healthy ways that don't involve beating each other up or doing lines of cocaine. That's what Elden Ring is for. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, so we've talked about the brother. Yeah. The brother is the portal of the story to get into the conflict with his mother. Mm -hmm. Also, that kind of aborted date that he has with Megan, where right. he's so drunk and so out of it on the volume that he steals from her medicine cabinet that he's trying to hook up with her. And she's a mother herself of a 13-year-old, I believe, as we learn. And she just kicks into, oh, man, this guy is lost. And is just stroking his head, letting him rest in her lap, making sure that there's breakfast for him in the morning. And it unlocks this need that he has, even though he was fully raised by his mother. His mother has recently passed, as we learn right at the end of the novel. But I think it unlocks some of that loss and that yearning for that nurturing that he doesn't have in his life with Amanda, that he doesn't have in the bustling city of New York or with any of his immediate friendships. And so, yeah, that brother is that key to the past. Amanda is that key to that lost nurturing that he's experiencing. And then we get to the mother, which for me really makes the whole novel work. That was the point where I was 150 pages into this book, give or take. Yeah. And I, I think so many of these, the misanthropy and the disillusionment and the vapidity, for lack of a better word, of what was going on with the characters, I would have just written this off as just a different take on the same Brett Easton Ellis verse that they all apparently live in. But... Here we actually see that loss of the mother and his inability to deal with it. And it does remind me of, in Less Than Zero, there's a scene where he's talking about his father and about someone who died on the movie set. No one could remember yeah. that person's yeah. name. I, we read it as a quote here. And I think about that, or about how the grandmother had died, no one noticed, mm -hmm. like... One day she wasn't around anymore, and no one cared that she was dying for years and didn't do anything about it and didn't connect. That Brett Easton Ellis would have us believe that's what everyone was in the 1980s. And maybe the point here is that's what privilege ultimately breeds. Or yeah. the West Coast at the very least. Could be. I think that's an interesting contrast here, although American Psycho isn't exactly a <laughs> picture postcard for New York City, so let's be honest here. But that connection that he does have and his ability, hopefully, to get back to a life which he would be able to achieve his literary dreams and be able to fulfill on who he is starts with actually dealing with the real world that is around him. Yeah, and one of the things that just really drove home my appreciation for this novel is that Jay McInerney takes that big risk and keeps this emotional payoff to the very, very yes. end. And I think a lesser author, and I see them all the time, is I run a literary magazine. I see submissions coming through all the time that begin with the death of a parent, begin at the mother's funeral, begins with these kind of crystallizing life moments or catalytic life moments, however you want to phrase it. Here, though, it feels so much more genuine that even though we're in this character's head, we're in this second-person intimacy with this character, and we don't even know about the mother until you say, like, about the last 30 pages. Mm. It's so powerful because I think that's so much more true to life. He brought his mom home, and they watched her die. They chose to care for her at home and spend those final moments with her at home, and while that can be a beautiful thing, that's also a really hard thing for a family to deal with. Mm. It was clearly affected his dad, clearly affected his brothers, and obviously affected our narrator in ways that we didn't learn about until the very end. And I think that's just such a wise choice and shows that Jay McInerney deserves that mantle of one of the great voices of his generation because he was able to subvert so many of these expectations of your typical misanthropic 80s youth novel. Really bring it back to the heart because that conversation that he has with her mom on her deathbed is so powerful. She's asking him all these questions that you're typical 1950s housewife, which she would have been when she begun her family, would never have asked their kids or never been allowed to think about or talk about openly. And it's this very real moment where it's not his mom anymore, it's a human being that he's getting to know, perhaps for the first time. And I think so many of us in life maybe never get that with our parents. 
maybe we only get that when they're on their deathbed. That kind of genuine moment of humanity really paints the whole rest of the novel quite differently. And you want to go back and reread it and get more context for all those references to smelling baked bread that he brings mm-hmm. up now and then his loss and his sense of yearning for Amanda and wanting something more concrete, something more real from her, even if it's her abandonment of him. Really does a wonderful job of tying all the seemingly loose vignettes of New York 1980s craziness into something far more meaningful and such a much more compelling portrait of a character. Getting back to something that I think you were touching on earlier, these characters, they didn't learn how to cope. That if you don't have a good example of what a positive family life is supposed to be or parents who are willing to be open with their children or to represent a open caring relationship as an example to their kids like it's no doubt that he ends up with someone like Amanda it is no doubt that he ends up getting sucked into this world he didn't know any better We've looked at novels and short stories, I think about Sticks, at the end of last year, about this circle of male ineptitude, for lack of a better word, in being able to deal with emotions or being able to connect with people. That's what that was about. It was just about that cycle. And our narrator here, he's deep in that cycle. Yeah. And you're right. It takes these women in his life in order to help him break out of that cycle. What does that say about broader society, that he is the minority because he may be starting to get his act together? That's really disturbing. Yeah, and we see, we don't get a full character arc here. We don't get him 10 years later with his act together as a successful writer. In fact, we get him begging for bread down at the docks, which could potentially be the nadir of anybody's life. But we know from where this character has come from, what that wholesomeness of that baked bread must represent for him and his willingness to give away some of the material elements in this case a pair of Ray-Bans that he's clung to and throughout the artifice of the 1980s is a wonderful character moment and then also a great commentary on the shallowness and the superficialness of the era at the same time mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean we're going to stop reading 80s novels no sir we're going to keep reading 80s novels because we like superficial novels we like the cocaine novels In case you're wondering what our obsession is with the 1980s, basically we're just reading all the novels we can about the cocaine trade in the 1980s to prepare you, our listeners, for our eventual review of the amazing John Travolta made-for-VR film, Speed Kills. This is true. We need to talk about this. Go deep on this (laughs) film. There's a lot about this film, which is based on a book, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. About cigarette boat sales in the 1980s, their connection to the Bush family, and possible champagne companies. We're going to leave that as a teaser here because it actually is much darker than you imagine. This is a real film that was made for VR headsets that you should never watch and hopefully will never reference again. Yeah. But we will. I think that brings us to the end of the book here. Yeah. I'm so glad that our reader Dave suggested this. Yeah. I had my doubts because it seemed thematically a little too much like Less Than Zero. And I thought maybe, gosh, maybe it would be good if we read a book without cocaine in it for once. But I am so glad we did because, as you said, as you rightfully pointed out, those last 30 pages are really where this novel sets itself apart from some of the other tales of the era that we've read. And uh, Jay McInerney was someone who I was vaguely aware of, but I hadn't read anything from his. And I'm actually a little bit surprised that his name hasn't continued to be mentioned alongside the Chuck Palahniuk's and the Brett Easton Ellis's of the world. And he's brought us some great dialogue. I'd be remiss if I didn't give us one more little tadism here before. Oh, you gotta go. Tad, by the way, played by Kiefer Sutherland. What great casting in the movie adaptation. It was all in preparation for Jack Bauer. The intercom buzzes while you're changing your shirt. You push the talk button. Who is it? Narcotic Squad. We're soliciting donations for children all over the world who have no drugs. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bright Lights Big City. We'll be returning in two weeks for a little bit of a departure for us. We're going to be talking about something a little more close to popular culture than a novel from the 1980s might be. But we're still going to be exploring some of the masculine themes therein. Dr. McCallan will be talking about... The White Lotus. We just binged White Lotus seasons one and two, and we have a lot to say about it. Mostly it's going to be comparing season two to the talented Mr. Ripley, but you could have guessed that if you've been listening to this podcast. Oh, indeed. But we look forward to joining you guys in two weeks' time, and then our book coming up next month, the month of April. It's Less by Andrew Sean Greer. 
So get to reading that, finish up the episodes of White Lotus that you might still have in your queue, and we will see you guys soon. Until then, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.